Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and we're broadcasting and releasing this podcast today on January 6th, 2022, the anniversary of the Capitol insurrection of a year ago. It's a somber and profoundly meaningful anniversary for every American, but I want to especially acknowledge at the start of the show the five people who lost their lives that day, as well as the 150 plus police officers who sustained injuries, many of them serious, in the course of trying to protect our capital and our country's democratically elected leaders from the violent attack. In the wake of the insurrection, a Harvard professor decided to teach a course in real time on what had happened on January 6th, the roots of that insurrection, and the unfolding understanding of the events of that day. And so we wanted to bring that kind of insight that you would normally just get in a Harvard course to everybody by welcoming the professor who taught that course here to be on politics. Alexander Kesar is the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard Kennedy School and the author of Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College, which is a really, really good question. Welcome, Professor Kesar, to Beyond Politics. Well, thank you, Matt. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to, a little strong given the somberness of the subject, but I'm pleased to have a chance to discuss this with you. Well, I'm very pleased as well, and I'm pleased because I'm pleased because of the importance of it. I, like you, I find the topic actually very emotionally affecting. And for listeners who are on podcast and can go back in the podcast feed, former Congressman Hodes, with whom I frequently co-host this program, and I did a show immediately on January 6th, talking about our reminiscences, his from his time as a member of Congress, me from my time as a staffer, our reflections on what it meant to, to see this attack on this institution, the very seat of our government. So it is with, with, a, with a heavy sense that I approach this episode, but it's incredibly important, and I'm really glad to dive into it with you. So what prompted you to set up this course. My understanding, you and I were chatting a little bit before we went on the air. My understanding is you were not planning, I mean, none of us were planning on an insurrection, but you were not planning to teach this course and you dropped everything. You dropped your entire plan for what you were gonna teach last year and you set this up on the fly. Why did you do that? Why did you decide to teach this course? I, 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 made, the I made the decision over a period of about 10 days. It happened on January 6th, the days thereafter. And I think, as I recall, the spring semester teaching started the last week in January. So there was not a lot of time between the events of January 6th and the beginning of the semester. But what, what happened as I was watching television and uh, ransacking my sources for news was that I, I I found this very engaging and very important. And I think I think there were kind of two things going on simultaneously in my head, and that's a good convergence for a course. One was that I was thinking, there are going to be students at the Kennedy School who are really gonna wanna spend some time exploring this and exploring this thoroughly. And the second part of it was that it presented itself as a puzzle or as a set of puzzles to me. I didn't have the answers. I, I, you know, I was asking myself the question, well, you know, what just happened and why did this happen and how did this happen and what does it mean? And I thought that you know, putting together a course would be a way of 
of approaching both of those questions for myself and for my students. And then, you know, and that's really, I mean, when, when, when the course began, I had a syllabus which asked for a lot of crowdsourcing in the first few weeks, just telling students, okay, go out and find out whatever you can find out about X. For example, who were the participants? And then for a lot of the rest of the course, it, you know, the syllabus said a week about the, the history of right-wing militants in the, you know, in the, in the United States, you know, to be determined. So what became the cliched reference to the course among the participants in the class was that I was, I was building the airplane while I was flying it. And there was some truth to that, but it, it, it worked out quite well. And it was, uh, it was certainly, I think, a very engaging experience for the students who had, it was a different experience for them. They were sufficiently engaged that actually the course ended last May. They continued meeting once a month for the next several months uh, on their own and invited me to participate. So it was a good experience for all of us. Wow. Well, I, I do want to get into that emerging puzzle as it, as it came together, as you describe it, not just for you and your students, but for all of us as information began to come in. But before we do, just one more question on sort of the experience of having this course. Most people aren't fortunate enough to take a, a course at Harvard. I was very fortunate. I, I have taken courses at Harvard. I, I went there for graduate school and I was actually there. You and I were chatting a few minutes ago about my experience 20 years ago was during what I thought would be the most surreal political environment of my lifetime, which was the Bush-Gore recount. And there, you know, at the, in kind of the, it's hard to describe this space for people who haven't been there, but it's sort of the central meeting space in the school. They set up screens, television screens everywhere. And we're just watching cable news all day in between courses of this recount. And it was really surreal. You had a very different experience. What do you think the experience for your students was like as they were sort of digging into and unearthing this historic event in real time over the course of several months? Well, part of what made it peculiar and I think maybe increased the attractiveness of having a course was that this happened last year in the middle of the worst stages of the pandemic or what up to that point were the worst stages of the pandemic so that nobody was on campus. I wasn't on campus. That forum setting, which still exists and which would under such circumstances have lots of television screens set up, it was dark. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't in my office except occasionally to pick up some material. The students were all scattered. So we, the course was online and... You know, and I think that 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 made it even that intensified because it was really the only chance for students to get together in groups to. Right. And I mean, this is I mean, for people who don't know, this is a group of students who people come out of this school and they they go into government. They these are people who this is their pre-professional experience to prepare for being in American government because they really believe in it. So this is, I imagine, as emotional as this was for me. It was equally emotional for them. Let's get a little bit into the substance that you were starting to set up just a moment ago. I think that's that's well put. The, the events happened that day, and it was almost a literal fog of war in our emerging, very sketchy understanding of what had happened and why. And then in subsequent months, we learned a lot. And you were just interviewed by the Harvard Gazette, and you pointed out two key items of what we've learned in the last year. One was that there was, as you put it, a very high 
and consistent level of engagement on the part of officials inside the White House, including the president, his staff, the people closest to him. There was a command center. There were text messages going around, including between people at Fox News and the White House. You're trying to get the president to to do anything to shut this down, and, and he refused. So we know that now. We also know that there was a constitutional strategy put right in front of the vice president, a pathway to essentially have a constitutional coup and reject electoral votes and overthrow the outcome of a democratic election. How do these revelations change what was our initial early stage understanding of January 6th that you were exploring back when you were doing the course? It's a very, it's a very good set of questions, Matt. And to try to reach back, and this is some teaching the course again, I've actually been looking at the syllabus as it emerged from last year so that I, I have some idea what we actually did last year. But what was, you know, at the, in the beginning, you know, last January, February, the image that I think most of us had, people who were even people who were following it closely, the image that most of us had was that this was this was a group of extremists and maybe some some kooky extremists wearing strange outfits and white nationalists of ver- of various sorts who had piggybacked on a on a pro trump rally and taken it into their own hands and in a very chaotic fashion had got broken through the security in congress and then wandered around for a number of hours sort of chanting various things you know like where's where's pence um and and then, because we never really saw much of the footage, then eventually, after a number of hours, they kind of got ushered out of the and they were gone. And Congress came back into session and decided that Joe Biden w- was was president. Uh, you know, but the the event looked like a chaotic, ill-organized. I wouldn't quite say spontaneous, because clearly there had been some planning. But it you know it did not you know it it. It did not look like an insurrection in a sense. I mean, actually, one of the things we discussed last year at the very beginning of the course, and I know, and I know newspapers discussed this too. Do we call this an insurrection? We call it a protest. Do we call it a riot? You know, what was it? So I think that that first image, the initial images that we had was of this, this chaos and a sense that what happened at the Capitol was kind of was somewhat separate from what happened at the rally, even even though Trump had said, you know, go, you know, go down there and fight and I'll join you, which of course he did. But and there was we had no idea or we I mean, so I can speak for myself and my students, and I don't think many people had much of an idea that there had been that that this was linked to the legal strategy that you talked about, other than there was some inchoate way in which they were trying to stop Congress from sort of accepting the electoral vote counts from all the states in the vague hope that maybe they could get some states to reverse it, or the more specific hope that if if the electoral votes from some states were not accepted, then Biden would not be elected because you have to get a majority of all electoral votes, and then the then the election will be thrown to the House. But those seem like such implausible possibilities that I don't think anybody thought that that was a strategy. You know, well we know now that that was there was a strategy. I think that we know now that 
the that would have been going on since the election itself and even before was a series of efforts to try to endure the evidence outcome of the election and to focus on certain states where the vote was very close and efforts were made by people in the White House and, and people outside of the White House like Steve Bannon and by people in the White House that includes <laughs> that includes the the primary occupant of the White House the then President Trump the efforts were being made to you know to to reverse the outcome of, of, the, of the election and that the Events at the Capitol. I mean, I think I think that what, what what the way this event appears now, to put it this way, is as having two prongs. One was a legal strategic prong, and the other was the use of force and violence to back up and reinforce the legal strategic uh, prong. And you know that that is the way it looks to me now, and that's very different from the way it looked a year ago. Well, I will say, and and at the risk of being. This, this could sound like I'm about to sprain a shoulder trying to pat myself on the back. I am not. But before, uh, about two and a half years ago, before I was writing articles for publication and before I was doing this show, I wrote just as a blogger, an article that I called World War T. That was a, a preview of what I thought was a likely scenario, a very close election. I chose a Democratic nominee because at the time we didn't have one. So I chose Elizabeth Warren, turned out to be Biden. The rest of it, you know, I said, look, we have a, a close result in the Electoral College and a legal strategy based on weaknesses in our electoral system and ambiguities in our laws of how we count votes and the ability to muck with that system and the ability of Donald Trump to whip up forces of violence. I sent a pre-copy of it around to a couple of people. And the only piece of feedback that I got before I, I published this article was, Tone down the suggestion that Trump forces would organize violent rallies or, or attacks because that's very unlikely and it's just going to make you seem like, you know, you're, you're kind of an alarmist. Okay, so I, I toned that down a little bit in my article. Whoops. So there you go. Here we are. I, what I, I, the only other comment I'll make is that it is interesting that there has been some debate about the use of the term insurrection. Part of what I hear you saying is that there was some, I could see why people would have a little bit of confusion about that early on. But if you look up the dictionary definition of an insurrection, boy, does this seem to fit the bill absolutely you know, to, to, to the last syllable. And I'm not sure that one needs a coordinated plan in advance for it to be an insurrection. You have to have a, an attempt, a, a violent attempt to overthrow the government. This seems to be what this was. Do you have any, any doubts about any of that now that you've taken this in-depth look? I don't have any doubts about it now that, that I, I feel comfortable, you know, characterizing it as an insurrection or a coup attempt when I'm talking about the whole, the, the whole assembly of, of events. What was less clear to me, and even looking at footage from the time, was whether the participants on January 6th at the Capitol actually believed that they were carrying out an insurrection and that they could overthrow, you know, overthrow the government. I mean, that, mm. that you know, that 
that remains murky to me. But I, I no, my, I would, I would, you know, I've written various things about this now, and I do not feel uncomfortable using the term insurrection. And I think that, you know, I think that that it's interesting when we had that for the first discussion in the class earlier class about what to call it. There was one member of the class, somebody who had been around for a long time, was, he was an advanced mid-career student, he was, you know, somebody in his 50s, and he said, well, what does it matter what we call it? And my answer was, it matters in terms of how this is going to be looked at in history and how this is going to be talked about next year and the year after and the year after that. And it matters whether it's going to be called a protest or an insurrection. And I think that's true. Well, that's a very interesting wrinkle that you add to this, first of all, this idea that Maybe the protesters themselves, let's charitably call them protesters, okay? Maybe the, maybe the attackers themselves weren't sure how committed they were to all of this. Like they may have, they may be like the dog that, that caught the, the mail truck and it's like, now what? <laughs> um, if they had actually caught Mike Pence after chanting, hang Mike Pence, there is, I guess, an open question. I hadn't thought about that, about how prepared were they really to follow through and maybe they weren't. Maybe a, a section of them weren't. Nonetheless, it, 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 they're, they're, the outcome is the outcome in the sense that five people died, 150 plus police officers were injured, some grievously. And we've seen many of them leave the force because of the mental health trauma that they've incurred since the event. And so it's, I guess that's a murky question that only prosecutors, courts, and people's own minds will be able to untangle in the future. And now I want to turn to what all of this means for the future of America and how we're going to view all of this historically. And you were noting a moment ago that the story of January 6th, the, the history, is yet to be written. I argued in a recent article in Newsweek that 2024 is setting up to be much, much worse. And my argument was basically, look, there are only three ways that the next presidential election could go, assuming Donald Trump is one of the nominees in it. One is that he loses. Well, we just saw that movie last year, and we are not looking forward to a sequel, especially one in which, with a majority of Republicans still not accepting the result, even when Mike Pence pronounced it, that can you imagine what will happen when Kamala Harris does it? Another possibility is that Trump actually outright wins legitimately. There are many analysts who believe that that would be the end of democracy in America as we know it. And there is a third scenario, which is that Trump wins illegitimately, making use of new election subversion laws that have been passed in various states controlled by Republican legislatures in the years since. So you have pointed out in your interview in the Harvard Gazette that we just don't know how we will evaluate January 6th, whether we'll, we'll look at it as a blip or as a reconnaissance mission for Trump supporters to try and figure out weaknesses in the system. How, how do you think, which way are you tilting? Which way are you leaning at this point? And, and how likely do you think the bad version of this for 2024 is? Well, I, I, I'd like to say, oh, Matt, you know, you're being, you're being too dramatic and 2024 will unfold peaceably and, and we will move on and, you know, and people will forget about what happened last year. I, I don't think that's the case. I share your apprehensions. I, 
I share your apprehensions uh, about the limited number of possibilities. I mean, we have to remember that the you know the 2024 election is still a couple of years away. We you know we don't we don't know what's going to happen, especially in terms of the individual candidates. Nobody's very young in this crowd, and but I think that the chances of the the odds that there will be some serious, not readily ex- or universally accepted. That, that there'll be a serious challenges, that there'll be conflict, that there'll be an outcome that is not universally accepted, that the odds of that are fairly high. And I, I you know, I would say certainly 50-50, you know, maybe, maybe even more than that. Go, going back to the, uh, uh, another segment of your question, I don't think that we can any longer think of what happened on January 6th of last year as a blip or as an anomaly. Uh, and actually, I've written that elsewhere. I did the, I did that interview for the Gazette, and then I wrote a couple of other things for for other places. It you know it, it if well it, it that and it has to do with what happened afterwards because initially we could possibly look at January the events of January sixth itself as an anomaly, and if you look at the, at even what happened in the next few weeks, you know the protesters went home, Trump you know Biden was inaugurated. Trump was denounced not only by the mainstream media, but by Lindsey Graham and by Mitch McConnell and even even the minority leader of the of, of the House, or I guess he was then the majority leader. Right, uh, that Kevin McCarthy, like for two weeks, he was against well, Trump. Well, well, exactly. But I mean, if you took those couple of weeks, you would have said, maybe this is going to be an anomaly. Maybe this is the last chapter of, of the Trump presidency. He overreached, he's repudiated now, and now politics will drift back towards, you know, something that we would have called normal. You know, that's, if you, fr- if you froze the film on February 1st of last year, that might be the way you, you could interpret it. But the film didn't freeze. Trump renewed his position as the head of one of the two major parties in the United States. Everybody else paid homage to him, and there has been really no repudiation of the events of January 6th or of the language and rhetoric that inspired it. So I don't see, you know, this was not an anomaly. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in 2024. I'm a, historians are notoriously loath to predict, and, and probably for good reason. But, you know, if I put on my other very part-time, you know, pundit and predictor hat, I think we are in for some very rough times over the next decade, and that what happened on January 6th will not be seen as the cause of them, but will be seen as a significant step uh, in the deterioration of political life in the United States. Speaking of that evolution, that that transition from the, the immediate reaction to the events of January 6th, to the later interpretations tinged by partisanship and a kind of rebirth of Donald Trump's place atop the Republican Party. I want to get your reaction to a recent Washington Post survey about the influence of Fox News. They found that Republicans who watch Fox News as a major source of their news are 15 points more likely to say that the rioters, the attackers, were, quote, mostly peaceful. Republicans who don't use Fox News as a major source of their news are 16 points more likely to say 
that they were mostly violent. What in your view, and as you and your class watched and investigated these views of, of the events of that day evolve, what was the role of traditional media, social media, and elected leaders like the ones you just referenced in reshaping public perceptions and memory of that event? Again, a, a very good cluster of questions. And the class, in fact, spent about two weeks focused precisely on those questions. Not, not I mean, it's less about how it was being viewed in memory, but more on, you know, for, for example, the number of people who believed the big lie that, you know, that Trump had actually won the election or won it in a land, as he has said many times. The, it's it's clear. I mean, it's it's still at some level. It's still very it's still puzzling to me. I still you know my head just doesn't want to accept this. But it's clear that the assembly of media of Fox social media alternative media it serves as a kind of it's it's both an it's it's not just an echo chamber which is a familiar cliche but it's it's a source of repetition of things that are false. And one of the things we, you know, we do know, I think we know, certainly there was, we did some readings about this, was that when people hear something said more than once, the so second or third, they've already heard it claimed before, and then they hear it being claimed again, they tend to give it uh, credence. You know, if, if you hear, you know, if, if you heard once that the, you know, that the Red Sox won the World Series, you know, years ago, you might have doubted it, but then, but then if you heard it three times, you would believe it. And, you know, I think, I mean, and again, this is was, and this, the other remarkable thing about this within the right, right wing media was the way in which it, it has, contra they have contradicted themselves and come up with different stories. I mean, Matt Gates, you know, a spokesman, Matt Gates made dramatic public statements on, I think, January 7th and 8th of last year, that the protesters were not people who liked Trump, that they were Antifa, that they were a left wing. And Tucker Carlson said something very similar, I think. Now, these people who were being denounced as being, you know, kind of left wing violent protesters are now being described as patriotic heroes who were defending the Constitution. So I, I, I think I think that if if you have news media that have well, if you, you know, news media that have no commitment to the facts or the truth, and it's sad to say that, but I think that that is, that is the case. And news media for whom the profits come, the commercial profits are achieved by increasing the size of an audience that already agrees with. And, and, that, and that's the primary source of news for a third of the population. Then we're going to get what we have now, which is this very, very divided legacy and a third of the American population believing a version of what happened on January 6th and since that I think can't be really documented. Well, to your point, we have in an upcoming episode, as people listen to this, this episode has not come out yet, but we interviewed Jesse Rhodes, who's a professor of public policy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and also the associate director of the poll they do. They just got out of the field. They just completed a poll and they looked at this question and Republicans, 30% of them blame Democrats, the Democratic Party, for the attacks on January 6th and some slightly smaller percentage, just very slightly blame Antifa, as you say. So that kind of thing doesn't just emerge out of nowhere like 
you know, some quantum physics thing. It, it's, it comes from somewhere and I'm looking at you, Fox, and maybe to some extent, Facebook and social media. I, I want to turn for a moment to the January 6th investigatory committee going on in Congress. In the immediate aftermath, many analysts, commentators, including me, called for what we viewed as a South Africa-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The idea being, we don't need a traditional congressional investigation here. We need something more akin to the 9-11 Commission, something that isn't so focused on placing blame, certainly not partisan blame, but is focused on let's unearth what happened and why, and let's move past it. Let's use this as an opportunity to put this behind us, maybe help the Republican Party make a break from Donald Trump and make a break from the forces that were behind the insurrection. Obviously, that quickly degenerated. The, the, the momentum for that idea was immediately lost. We ended up with the January 6th investigatory committee, which is bipartisan, but is not viewed by most Republicans as something that they support. Now, you pointed out in your Harvard Gazette our interview and elsewhere that no one's mind at this point is going to be changed by further facts or by revelations. And we already know that Donald Trump's supporters are unmovable and Democrats aren't going to come around to the Trumpist view that dismisses January 6th or that subscribes to the big lie. And so, and we have the Department of Justice doing the prosecution on the criminal end. They, they're prosecuting 700 plus people at latest count for their criminal role in the insurrection. So that's covered. So this may seem like a cynical question, Professor, but is there really any purpose to the January 6th commission since it won't change anybody's perception or understanding of events? Is it essentially just a research project for historians like you? There's something wrong with having a research for historians <laughs> like, but um, I'm in favor of research. Believe me, I no, 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 I, no, I no, love no. it. <laughs> I, I understand the spirit of your question, but I, I couldn't quite resist. I think there is. I mean, you know, let, let me just add to the, you know a, a little bit to the narrative that you told. The fact is that the the in the House there was support for a 9/11 style commission, and it was killed in the Senate. It was killed by Republicans in the Senate who refused to support it. My view, and I have no, well, you know, I have no secret evidence about this, is that, you know, there's the stated Mitch McConnell reason was we don't want to be looking at the past, we want to be looking forward. I think that what was going on also was that Republicans in the Senate, the leaderships, people like McConnell, did not want to prevent the formation of a kind of, of, of a documented count and history and evidentiary record about what happened on January 6th. They did not want that to happen. I mean, you know, because we do have that kind of record from, from 9-11. There's, there's still, you know, things that are disputed, but we do still have the 9-11 Commission report. And I think that they wanted to prevent that from happening. In terms of the committee that does exist, which is, which is technically bipartisan, but since the Republican Party has declared that the two Republicans on the committee are are not real Republicans. It's not going to be accepted as anything other than partisan. And I, you know, that's that's one of the casualties of the events themselves and of Trumpism. That it's impossible to form 
a you know a, a truth and reconciliation uh, commission. It's and you know I think that I think that the purpose that the current committee is serving though is is still very important. For one thing, it is assembling evidence and documentation, as we're seeing on an almost daily basis now, as it as it leaks out. That, that adds to the story. I mean, you know, today we know more about Sean Hannity's shenanigans than we did two days ago. And, you know, and they have they have the emails and they're and it's it's being public. I, I also do think that looking looking ahead, I mean, I don't think that I stand by what I said, I guess, in the you know, in the Gazette. I don't think that a report or a statement from Republican leaders in, you know, that's made in six months from now is going to affect the 2022 elections or the 2024 elections. I don't think that a lot of people are going to change their minds. Although you, you, we might see a process where one or two key, key people join Liz Cheney and others in taking that stance, and then that gives courage to still some others. Every once in a while, when you you know you read in the newspapers that that privately a lot of Republican members of Congress are saying different things than what they're saying publicly, and maybe they'll start saying different things publicly once they have, you know, that evidentiary record of testimony and documents to point to. I mean, that's one possibility that in the short run, in the short run, it might shift public stances and understanding somewhat. The greater purpose, I think, of it will be in affecting how these events are understood and looked at ten years from now, uh, or, or twenty years from now, and that's that's not unimportant. It may seem very far in the future. We may think, that, you know, there could be so many disasters between now and then, but I think it. I think it does matter. Things will probably still be somewhat embattled, although they'll be quite different 10 years from now. And having having that the committee's report and evidence available will, I think, make a difference. You know, speaking of casualties of that day, one of them may have been a sea change in Americans' acceptance of violence as an alternative to political process. Again, another outcome of that Washington Post poll that I cited was that 40% of Republicans and independents say that violent action against the government is sometimes justified. And overall, the percentage of Americans who say violent action against the government is justified at times is now at 34%, which is much higher than has ever been measured in that poll or similar polls from other organizations. Do you find that to be a significant consequence, a significant outcome of that day that to some degree we have now crossed some kind of a Rubicon here where this is this is it for this generation of Americans, this is an accepted part of public life that sometimes violence is necessary. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've read those polls also, and I, and I, I find it to be very scary. And I think, it, I think, I think it's, you know, but it's a consequence, not just of January 6th. I mean, there was the, the march in Charlottesville, you know, be, before before that, and, you know, and other smaller events, or or what even in the, during the 2020 election campaign, what was going on in Michigan, right? It was there an attempt to, you know, to kidnap the governor of Michigan, and, you know, and nasty, nasty protests at the home of Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, who was one of the, you know, best election officials in the, in the country. So I, I, I think, yes, I think that in some circles, in some worlds, the use of violence 
has become more acceptable and it's rationalized. And this, this, is, this is where things start getting, I think, complicated and important. It's rationalized in part by the big lie and by the offshoots of the big lie. Because if, if the election has been stolen, you know, if I think, if I, for the moment, identify as one of these people, if the election has been stolen um, from me, and if it means that I can't, in a peaceable way, get the change in government that I want, because those other guys are cheating and stealing, then the use of violence becomes justifiable in my, in my mind. So I think that there's a direct link between the acceptability of political violence and the claims by Trump and by the people around him, the, the claims of the big lie and the many smaller lies that accompany it. One final question for you, and I guess it's a, it's a sort of in the final analysis question. There are two narratives, two stories one could ultimately tell about the events of January 6th. There's a good news version and a bad news version. The good news version is as much as there was a plan to overturn the vote and attempt to whip up a mob and 140 Republicans who voted not to certify the results of an American election based on the big lie, the system held. The vote was not overturned. And ultimately, we managed a fairly peaceful transition of power. The bad news version is, dang, was that close. Way too close. Which view do you subscribe to ultimately when you think back to January 6th? I'm... Um... I'm closer to the second, more pessimistic view. I think that, I, I mean, I, I like the first version and the, the more optimistic version, and I'd like to be able to stick with it. But the more, you know, the more I delve into this, you know, there, there, have, been a, there have been a slew of books by journalists and, you know, other folks published within the last six to eight weeks about this. And since I'm reteaching my course this spring, I've been reading uh, all these books. And they, they make immersing myself in those details leads me closer to the boy that was close. And we, there was some luck in the fact that we got through this okay. Well, that's a somber note to end on. But look, this is a somber day. And I, as much as I, I, I want to do this show, and I, I, this is part of a series of shows that we're doing on January 6th. It may feel like a bit too much, but you were alluding a moment ago to the power of repetition and reminding people. And I think we need to remind ourselves just how significant that day was. And it may just be a precursor. And so if we do nothing else, even if we're dwelling on something a little depressing, a little scary and a little somber, if we do nothing else, then hopefully we'll activate in our own minds the importance of this and trying to take steps to forestall something like that ever happening again. Professor Kesar, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you, Matt. I've enjoyed this conversation.